0: Hi, welcome to Thrive, the Eastern Health Junior Doctors Medical Education Podcast. My name is Emma, and I'm a supervisor of junior doctor training at Eastern Health, an emergency physician, and I'm passionate about medical education. This podcast is not about me, however. Thrive is brought to you by a talented crew of junior doctors just like you, asking great questions, creating quality content, and producing excellent education. You can look forward to stimulating interviews, clinical cases, topic presentations, medical stories, and much more. Our goal is to help you not just survive your junior doctor years, but thrive.
1: Welcome back for part two of our discussion on the topic of pediatric vomiting and diarrhea. I'm Visakin and I'm the pediatric content curator for Thrive and host of this podcast. I am again joined by our interviewee, Andy Lovett, who is a general pediatrician and current clinical director of pediatrics at Eastern Health. For those of you who haven't already, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one of our podcast for all the handy tips and tricks discussed, as well as some really good insights into assessing this presentation. Today, we're going to be exploring the principles of rehydration, including roots, rates, and choice of fluids, as well as adjuncts to therapy besides rehydration itself. We'll be discussing the pearls and pitfalls of fluids prescribing and whether or not there's a role for antibiotics in suspected or confirmed bacterial gastroenteritis, as well as discussing how to field questions that parents have regarding gastro, particularly about what children should or shouldn't eat, and how to go about safety netting them for discharge. Welcome back, Andy. G'day. Once you've assessed the degree of dehydration, what are some principles that you follow about the route by which you rehydrate them?
2: So my starting approach to rehydrating a child with gastro is to use the enteral route. If they will take it orally, I'll calculate the volume that I need them to rehydrate according to my best guess at dehydration plus ongoing losses plus maintenance requirements. And we'll talk more about that systematically in a minute. And if they can swallow it without a nasogastric, then I'll encourage them to swallow it without a nasogastric. If they can't, either because they just can't take the volume or because they're just too lethargic, it's been going on for too long, then my bias is towards the nasogastric. If there's some reason I can't use a nasogastric, so older child, This we're really talking mostly about children less than four that have gastro-severe enough to need this kind of treatment. Most kids above four can manage with oral rehydration at home and don't tend to come as frequently. But if it's an older child then we're not quite so sure about the comfort of nasogastric versus IV. And then it'll be mature clinician judgment as to which Mm. way we go. And most of my colleagues would probably still use an IV. So that's how I'm going to approach it. Will they take it orally? The fluid, what kind of fluid should I use if I'm giving them oral fluid? We need to be a bit careful about that. Ideally, it should be an electrolyte appropriate fluid and glucose appropriate fluid for optimal rehydration. And so something like hydrolytes perfect for that. The only trouble with hydrolyte is it doesn't really taste very nice. And a lot of kids, particularly kids that have autism or something where they're quite funny about tastes they just won't take it they won't take it in sufficient volumes and then you come down to what other fluids can you use now I'm going to tell the residents this, but residents, I do not want you to use this, nor do I want you to advise parents to use this. But the WHO used to publish the most simple, simple, simple recipe for rehydration solution. And I may even get the recipe slightly wrong. So I'm just telling you how simple it is, and then I'll tell you why we don't use it. So it might be 250 ml of water with one teaspoon of sugar and one pinch of salt. And that's a good rehydration solution. The trouble is, we're not a very smart community and too many people were doing a teaspoon of salt and a pinch of sugar. And um, that was far too much salt. And so we don't recommend it. And I don't want you to recommend it to your patients, but it could be that simple if it had to be. And if you ever really need to do that because you're working somewhere and you have no other options, Google the recipe. And then- There's some other things that I use, which I learned in training, which have kind of gone out of fashion, but I think they're still useful. And that's uh, palatable fluids that have a bit of sugar in them, such as orange juice, apple juice, cordials that have sugar, not sugar-free cordials. Definitely not because you need some sugar to allow absorption. And you just make it to one quarter of the normal strength. So that would be one quarter orange juice or apple juice, three quarters water. Lemonade would be the same. And if it's cordial, make it to the normal palatable strength for you and then water it down to a quarter. Now that, doesn't contain the sodium that salt would have, but often there's enough sodium in the gut anyway to sort of manage that. And the glucose in the rehydration solution is an option. It's not ideal. Better to take hydrolyte if they'll take it. If you're using nasogastric rehydration, of course, use hydrolyte. Don't use anything else. There's a question as to whether we should allow ongoing feeding with breast milk or formula for younger kids who have gastro. Every now and then, you'll get a kid who has lost the tips of the villi of their small bowel and therefore lost their lactase and they have become lactose intolerant. And I don't know if you know this, but breast milk actually has more lactose than cow's milk and more lactose than any formula I know. And so it is possible to be lactose intolerant, But that kind of declares itself. I wouldn't encourage ever stopping of normal feeding of a young child, particularly breastfeeding for this purpose. But if they still had gastro after a week, I'd start to think maybe I need to treat lactose intolerance. And there's a couple of ways we can do that without stopping breastfeeding. We can give a little bit of lactase. There are other things we can do. So they're the fluids. And then the question is, how much should I be giving? The definites are you need to try and work out what you need to replace. And you need to work out what you need for maintenance. And I'll talk about how I do that. But I'd encourage anyone listening to this podcast, if they have to do that, to Google a respected guideline. So usually, it would be the Royal Children's Hospital, if you're working in Victoria rch.org.au slash clinical guide. And then there's a link for gastro. And in that link, it'll give you the formula. And even it'll just tell you how old is this child or how much does the child weigh and what's your estimated loss. And it'll give you the amount to give. And frankly, I think that's safer unless you do this every day. But in the background to that, You work out your replacement and some people use an eight hours, you give more and then 16 hours, you give slightly less. Other guidelines actually require you to give the same amount over 24 hours. If you're hypernatremic, phone a friend because it's a bit different if your sodium's high, you want to be a bit more careful and perhaps a bit more slower in your rehydration approach. But the maintenance is, I used a four, two and one rule, four mils per kilo per hour for the first 10 kilograms, two mils per kilo per hour for the next 10 kilograms and one mil per kilo. So at About 9pm last night, because I was on call, I took a phone call from someone and I asked how much did they weigh and they weighed 32 kilograms. So in my head, I said, first 10 kilograms at four mils, so that's 40 mils. Next 10 kilograms at two mils, that's 20 mils. Last 12 kilograms at one, so that's 12. So 40 plus 20 plus one, the appropriate dose is 72 mils per hour. That's how I did it. So that's for maintenance, and then you add the deficit on top. And if there is a lot of losses, then you also add the losses. But it really needs to be quite a bit for that to make a difference. Usually, if you're just correcting the deficit, you'll get there, would be my advice.
1: I see often in the guidelines that two-thirds maintenance is often adequate for most patients. And my understanding of the reasoning for that is that if you were to give a patient full maintenance and they have SIADH, you're going to precipitate a hyponatremia.
2: Uh, a hyponatremia would be hypo- what you'd precipitate, I think, because you've got inappropriate antidiuretic hormone and retaining fluid. With mm. so, But that's certainly true for the respiratory illnesses and the neurological illnesses like meningitis. It is seen in gastro, but a lot less commonly, but yeah, that's a good reason to use two thirds maintenance for a lot of hydration requirements. A lot of kids that are going to end up on IV fluid in a hospital are because of a respiratory cause and having a mind to the two thirds requirements wise, then.
1: Mm. And once we have assessed the degree of dehydration, we figured out what their maintenance rate is and how much we need to replace from a deficit point of view. What are the goals of rehydration and how do we evaluate how effective our rehydration has been?
2: The goal is to get them adequately hydrated so you can get them home. And that will depend on what the nature of their illness is to how long they're going to continue to have vomiting and diarrhea. But most kids, most kids, it's norovirus. Most kids, you'll admit them in an evening and they'll go home the next morning and they won't have even completed their 24 hours of rehydration, but they'll be drinking by the next morning and you'll be comfortable to let them go. The goal is to get them adequately rehydrated to get back out into the community, either from emergency or from the ward or from your general practice and in general practice, of course, it's advice with what I call a circle of safety and other people call a safety net as to when to bail and seek further help. There's a concept and it comes out of the United States where they have a legal requirement to treat kids who are uninsured and they're business entities, and that's quite a loss leader for them. And so it's in their interest to treat the kids and get them out as quick as humanly possible without causing harm. And so they were the leaders in rapid rehydration techniques, which occasionally we use. And we're using more and more because we've got such a pressure on beds. And I'm not going to talk about it in great detail, but it's out there. There are protocols described. You can access them and use them if there was a strong reason why you needed to do a rapid rehydration. But if you were doing that, I'd suggest you did it in consultation with a senior doctor either at a registrar or consultant level but it's there it's an option
1: i can jump in on that idea i haven't seen rapid rehydration even though it's written in the guidelines clinically practiced thus far as a junior doctor
2: i think it might come The Americans love it because it's quick and it gets uninsured patients out. We do well to do what we know and change slowly and carefully. And so it's not commonly used in Australia, but if you had to use it, you could, and that's to give the loss over four hours and just tolerate if they're going to vomit, they're going to vomit, but let's just get that fluid in. And even if they vomit, they'll probably only vomit 25% of it, which means they'll retain 75%. But I don't think any of us are as familiar with it. And I wouldn't be advising it unless there was a very, very particular reason to do so and do it in consultation with a senior doctor.
1: Mm. My next question to you is besides rehydrating the child, what are some sort of adjuncts we can use to help
2: So there's enough evidence to say that we should be using ondansetron if we're trying to keep fluids down in a dehydrated child. I think that's clear. The only downside to it, there's not much in the way of side effects to ondansetron, and it's really just a matter of cost. And I'm trained as a pediatrician and a health economist, and I can tell you the cost of giving ondansetron is a lot, lot, lot less of needing to keep a patient in hospital for another four hours. So I think that's a good thing to do. The older ones, which might still be used occasionally in adults, such as metaclopramide and things, they're not so good because you can get quite a few more side effects from those, and uh, particularly with adolescents. So it'd be on Dancitron or don't use it, would be my advice.
1: What are some common pitfalls in fluid prescribing and what can junior doctors do to just be
2: mindful of them? The biggest, oh, is it a pitfall? We know a lot more about appropriate fluids for children than we knew 25 years ago. And a lot of that research has actually come out of Melbourne and it's informing the worldwide practice in IV rehydration of children. And there's fluids which have actually been established as even better, but not commercially available yet, but they probably will be, but I'm not going to talk about them because you won't find them in the cupboard. But the standard solution now for a child who requires their first IV bag, unless there's a very good reason to do something else, you should write it as normal saline with 5% dextrose. And you write it like that and that's actually sold in bags. And so somebody who's going to put it up can go and get normal saline with 5% dextrose. Now, it's not taking 5% dextrose and mixing it with normal saline because that would give you half normal saline with 2.5% dextrose. So it's actually on the bag. It's therefore, it's a slightly hypertonic solution, but it's probably the one which causes the least flux. And then the question is whether you need to use supplemental potassium or not. And I think that should be guided based on what the potassium is rather than routinely using potassium would be my advice.
1: Mm. Would you ever prescribe antibiotics if you suspected or confirmed on the stool MCS?
2: Yeah. So it's a good question. I would, going back to the first thing I was talking about is what is this and how serious this is? If I've got a child that I'm resuscitating and they're shocked, I'm going to follow that algorithm and part of that algorithm might take me down to DEFG where I'm thinking about disability and the possibility of something other than routine gastro and I might just give antibiotics on spec as part of my resuscitation and that would be fine and defensible. If I was planning to give antibiotics to a child with gastro, I'd drag my feet now there's some indication. So for example, neonates and very young infants with salmonella are more likely to get invasive infection. But usually I need a good reason to think it's salmonella. So a differential diagnosis for bloody diarrhea in a neonate is actually cow milk protein enteropathy, which is about 10 times more common. They Sometimes they get vomiting with it too, come to think of it. But I need to think, nah, this looks like sepsis and there's bloody diarrhea. Sometimes I'll give antibiotics on spec, but Oftentimes, I'll still wait and be sure that there's some other suggestion that there's some sepsis going on, such as a very high CRP and a raised white cell count. And then on that basis, I would give antibiotics. The trouble, of course, is that when you give antibiotics to a patient with one of the infectious bacterial infections, particularly salmonella, is you prolong this shedding of the bacteria rather than getting clearing it. And that can be a problem from a public health perspective because I don't know if you know, but a lot of four-year-olds who have just learnt to wipe their own bums are not particularly good at washing their hands. And then they go and touch the food and touch each other and spread the salmonella wide and wide. And so you need a good reason to give antibiotics. And routinely, apart from looking septic, like really septic, or the very young, I wouldn't want to use antibiotics. Mm. Now it goes to the rare thing that pediatricians see. Occasionally I see really bad cases of Clostridium difficile because kids have had so many courses of antibiotics because they're chronic illness, and then I'm using oral vancomycinals but that's as rare as rocking horse poo. Yep. Sticking with the common things, don't use antibiotics.
1: Understood. In patients who are septic but not shocked, is there still a preference for enteral fluids over IV?
2: If you think a patient looks septic, and by that you're actually inferring that there's probably a focus, but actually there's a possibility that there is septicemia or at very least a bacteremia as part of it. If you think that, then you should put a cannula in, you should resuscitate according to ABC, and when you've dealt with ABC adequately, you should give antibiotics.
1: When we're sending kids home with presumed gastro, what sort of advice should we give to parents in regards to sort of red flags to represent to either their GP or hospital?
2: It's a good question. So I love the idea of the circle of safety or the safety netting. I think it's something that respects parents, respects their intelligence and respects their dignity and shows a change from paternalistic practice we used to have, which was that we didn't trust them and we kept kids a whole lot longer. So this communication is really important in modern medicine. And so the things I'd say is first, trust your instinct. If you as a parent have a feeling that something's not right, you're probably correct. And even if you're not, we need to take it very seriously because the research says that if you come with your instinct saying something's not right, there's quite a good chance that something will not be right. So, and then I say, if you need more specifics, here's some. If your child is floppy, hard to wake up, not drinking anything or drinking very little, appears blue, is breathing very fast. There's some obvious things. A really useful one that you can count is the number of times your child's making urine. If your child is passing urine once every six hours, then there's a fair bet, if everything else is okay, that hydration's adequate for the time being. If it goes on for more than three or four days, this is unusual, and you probably need to go back to a health professional. So that can be your GP, it can be an emergency department or some other context if you've got other options, but you probably need to see a health professional because that's longer than the, the Noro or any of those and bit wanting to be careful. By the way, don't forget, we've got an influenza outbreak as you and I are speaking, and that often presents with vomiting and diarrhoea. Mm. in kids so sorry I should have thought of that one when I was talking about the viruses but they're the things that I encourage families to sort of uh, come back for
1: Mm. and one of the questions I get frequently asked by parents is that when their child is gastro that they're not eating and does it matter if they're not eating for a few days and if they can eat what should they be eating
2: Yeah. So when I was a kid, my mum would only let me eat bland foods and I'm scarred by that. In fact, my advice is don't worry if your child doesn't want to eat. So long as your child's drinking enough to be flushing the kidneys, your child will get over this. When your child is on the mend, your child will have a voracious appetite and will catch up. And pretty much every kid will be back to baseline within a couple of weeks, unless they're really unfortunate and they get infection after infection, which occasionally occurs, but they'll catch up. As to what they should eat, Just apart from ones where you're thinking maybe they're lactose intolerant because they've had this diarrhea now for a couple of weeks, whatever they want. If they want bland things, give them bland things. But if they want to eat, let them eat. Point Egan. Yep.
1: Um, So we've covered a lot in this podcast. I guess the last question to wrap it up would be, what would be your three take-home points from all the things we've discussed today as sort of the key messages for our HMOs listening to us?
2: I suppose if there were three things is... Not really jokingly, but I'm really glad you're doing the job you're doing because it's an important job and you as a junior have an important role because you're the eyes and ears and the hands of assessment. I am on the other end of the phone often and I'm relying on you to do a good job and be careful and thoughtful in what you do. That's the first thing. The next, keep an open mind. Not every case of vomiting and diarrhea is gastro. Keep an open mind. Beware of the mimics or other things that can cause it. And the third is if you're going to rehydrate enterals better than IV.
1: Phenomenal. Thank you for your time, Dr. Lovett. All right.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for Thrive. The Thrive Podcast is available wherever you listen, with new episodes uploaded periodically. To get the most out of this episode, you can access show notes and a growing library of resources through Workplace. Just log in with your Eastern Health email address and password and search for the Thrive group. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please send any questions, comments or suggestions to thrive at easternhealth.org.au. You can also let us know if you're keen to join our dynamic team.